Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The reason we are witnessing these uproars right now from DeSantis' strategies in Florida to the actions of the college board um, is that education is integrally related to social change. And this is something Malcolm taught us, uh, uh, both through his words and through his actions. As the teaching of black history is coming under attack, we spend the hour marking what would have been Malcolm X's 98th birthday. We'll play a major address on Malcolm's legacy by Professor Angela Davis, given in the ballroom where he was gunned down. We'll also hear from civil rights attorney Ben Crump, then Malcolm X in his own words. To bring about the complete independence of people of African descent here in the Western Hemisphere and first here in the United States and bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the G7 summit gets underway in Hiroshima, Japan, world leaders agreed to new sanctions against Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. Ahead of their first joint meeting today, President Biden and other leaders paid tribute to the victims of the world's first nuclear attack, the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, August 6, 1945, laying wreaths at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial and planting a tree. President Biden did not issue an apology for the attack. A group of anti-nuclear activists rallied on the streets. Biden is in Hiroshima, and he's brought along with him a button to fire a nuclear missile. I cannot forgive him for this. He needs to apologize to the people in Hiroshima. At least 140,000 people died in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, which leveled the city. Three days later, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki, killing another 74,000 people. Japan's prime minister, Fumio Kishida's family, is from Hiroshima. He lost relatives in the city's bombing. Kishida has pushed for the abolition of nuclear weapons while leading the nation's biggest military buildup since World War II. Meanwhile, Oxfam reports G7 countries collectively owe poor nations in the global south more than $13 trillion in development and climate assistance. But instead, these countries are saddled with daily debt repayments of $232 million, deepening the global chasm of inequality. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to appear at the G7 summit over the weekend to appeal for more arms and aid for the war. 
Russia and Ukraine have agreed to a two-month extension of the Black Sea grain deal, which grants Ukraine safe passage to export food and fertilizer. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the extension would save lives. These agreements matter for global food security. Ukrainian and Russian products feed the world. Under the Black Sea Initiative, more than 10 million tons of food have been exported. The Pentagon said Thursday an accounting error led to the overestimate of the value of arms shipments sent to Ukraine by the Biden administration as part of a $44 billion military aid package approved by Congress last year. The Pentagon said by correcting the errors, it could send another $3 billion worth of weapons to Ukraine. The U.S. military has dropped its claim that a man killed by a U.S. drone strike in northwest Syria May 3rd was a senior al-Qaeda leader. In interviews with The Washington Post, family members denied 56-year-old Latvi Hassan Misto had any ties to al-Qaeda, said he was a former bricklayer and father of 10 who was tending his sheep when a U.S. missile killed him. So far, U.S. Central Command has refused to say who its target was. Meanwhile, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is in Saudi Arabia to attend his first Arab League summit since Syria was suspended from the group 12 years ago, as Syria descended into a devastating civil war following Assad's violent crackdown on protesters. Earlier this month, the Arab League agreed to readmit Syria as part of an effort to reintegrate the war-torn nation in the region. Volodymyr Zelensky is also in Jeddah, where he's addressing the summit, and will meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and others. Tens of thousands of Israeli nationalists, escorted by heavily armed soldiers, marched through occupied East Jerusalem Thursday, marking Flag Day, which celebrates Israel's seizure of Jerusalem and the West Bank in the 1967 Middle East War. Many of the marchers chanted death to Arabs and directed racist slurs at Palestinians. Palestinian residents of the old city's Muslim quarter were beaten by Israeli ultra-nationalists. Far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir was among senior politicians who joined the march. Ben Gavir was previously convicted of racist incitement against Arabs and supporting a terrorist group. AFP's Jerusalem correspondent Rosie Scamel published video of Israelis throwing sticks, stones and bottles at journalists at the Damascus Gate, writing, quote, they cheer every time they hit us with projectiles. Three journalists were wounded, at least two of them with head injuries. In the Gaza Strip, Israeli soldiers fired live rounds and tear gas toward Palestinians who'd gathered to protest along the heavily fortified barrier separating the besieged territory from Israel. This is Hamas official Ismail Rudwan. The march of the flags will not bring you sovereignty over Jerusalem, which you turned into a military base. Jerusalem will forever remain the single united capital of Palestine. Here in the United States, members of the far-right House Freedom Caucus are calling on Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to suspend negotiations with the White House on raising the limit on the national debt. Caucus members said they're willing to allow the U.S. to default on its debts, something that could happen as soon as June 1st, unless Democrats agree to sweeping cuts in federal spending on housing, education, health care, food assistance and the environment. They're also demanding Democrats agree to speed the approval of oil, gas and mining permits and rescind most of the climate legislation signed by President Biden. In response, a growing number of Democrats are calling on Biden to invoke his authority under the Constitution to avert a debt default, a legal strategy that's never been tested. This is Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. In fact, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution clearly states, 
quote, it's not ambiguous, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, end quote. Is this a perfect solution? Is imposing the 14th Amendment a perfect solution? No, it is not. But using the 14th Amendment would allow the United States to continue to pay its bills on time and without delay, prevent an economic catastrophe, and prevent devastating cuts to some of the most vulnerable people in this country. California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein suffered far more serious complications from her recent illness than her staff previously acknowledged. That's according to The New York Times, which reports Feinstein's recent bout with shingles triggered a previously unreported case of encephalitis, or swelling of the brain, which can leave patients with lasting memory or language problems and other cognitive effects. She's also reportedly suffering from vision and balance impairments and facial paralysis from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Feinstein Stein, who's 89 years old, returned to Capitol Hill last week after a month's long leave during which she missed more than 90 floor votes. Her absence also held up dozens of votes on President Biden's nominees to federal courts in the Senate Judiciary Committee. A growing number of Democrats have called on Feinstein to resign, but so far she's refused. Progressive lawmakers have reintroduced legislation that would expand Medicare coverage to all U.S. residents. The Medicare for All Act of 2023 has garnered more congressional support than ever before, with over 120 lawmakers backing the measure. Washington Democrat Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus, says 38 percent of people surveyed last year reported they did not get the medical care they needed because it was too expensive. That's not to mention the millions who are drowning in medical debt and the millions who are one broken bone, one car accident, one new prescription away from medical bankruptcy. An estimated 68,000 people die every year solely because they can't afford health care. That is criminal. In more news from Congress, legislation that would guarantee paid family and medical leave nationwide was introduced Wednesday. The measure, co-sponsored by Democratic Congressmember Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut and Senator Bernie Sanders, would grant everyone working for businesses with 15 or more workers to earn up to seven paid sick days a year. Some 34 million U.S. workers still don't have paid sick time. In immigration news, an eight-year-old migrant girl from Panama has died in the custody of U.S. Border Patrol. Anadith Tane Reyes Alvarez was being detained at a border facility in Harlingen, Texas, with her parents and two older siblings, when she began experiencing a medical emergency and was later pronounced dead at a local hospital, Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, said Wednesday. Her parents, who are from Honduras, said she was born with a heart condition. Honduran officials are demanding a thorough investigation into what happened. This is the first known death of a migrant child in Border Patrol custody under the Biden administration and comes a week after it was confirmed a 17-year-old Honduran migrant teen died at a U.S. Health and Human Services facility in Florida earlier this month. A four-year-old child from Honduras also died in March in HHS custody. In related news, the U.S. Supreme Court has dismissed an attempt by Republican-led states to revive the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy, which was lifted last Thursday by the Biden administration. The rule was enforced for three years, leading to the expulsion of nearly three million asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process. And Democratic Congressmember Cory Bush has introduced a bill that would allocate $14 trillion in reparations for black Americans. The progressive lawmaker from Missouri spoke Wednesday at a news conference in front of the U.S. Capitol. 
We know that we continue to live under slavery's vestiges. We know how slavery has perpetuated Jim Crow. We know how slavery's impacts live on today from the black-white wealth gap to voter suppression to segregation and redlining to disparities in infant mortality rates and other health outcomes. <laughs> when the black-white wealth gap is $14 trillion, it's unjust and it wouldn't happen in a just and fair and equitable society. Congressmember Cory Bush was surrounded by co-sponsors of the bill, including California Congressmember U.S. Senate candidate Barbara Lee, who also introduced a resolution to create a commission on truth, racial healing and transformation. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Angela Davis on Malcolm X. He was born 98 years ago today. Stay with us. But Not For Me, performed by Sonny Stitt and Gene Ammons. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Malcolm X was born 98 years ago today in Omaha, Nebraska, on May 19, 1925. Malcolm was assassinated just 39 years later, on February 21, 1965, when he was standing at the podium before a crowd in Harlem's Audubon Ballroom. His wife, Betty Shabazz, pregnant with twins and his four daughters, aged six, four, two, and five months, were in the ballroom looking on. In February, the family of Malcolm X filed a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the FBI, the CIA, New York City and state, and the NYPD and the district attorney's office for concealing evidence of their involvement in Malcolm X's 1965 assassination. Two men were convicted of his murder and spent decades in prison, but were fully exonerated in 2021. Well, today we spend the hour remembering Malcolm X. We begin with Angela Davis, the world-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, distinguished professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her many books include Abolition, Feminism Now, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and Are Prisons Obsolete? Earlier this year, she gave the keynote address at a February 19th event at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, housed in the former Audubon Ballroom. Professor Davis spoke about Malcolm's legacy, as well as the increasing attacks on the teaching of black history by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and others. She began by referencing the actor Ozzie Davis, who gave the eulogy at Malcolm X's funeral, describing him as, quote, our own black shining prince. Ozzie said the following in Malcolm's eulogy. Last year, from Africa, he wrote these words, Malcolm wrote these words to a friend. My journey, he says, is almost ended. And I have a much broader scope than when I started out, which I believe will add new life and dimension to our struggle for freedom and honor 
and dignity in the states. I am writing these things so that you will know for a fact the tremendous sympathy and support we have among the African states for our human rights struggle. The main thing, he wrote, is that we keep a united front wherein our most valuable time and energy will not be wasted fighting each other. Malcolm's words and his trajectory as a movement leader and a movement participant are as valuable today as they were six decades ago. They resonate in powerful ways because the change Malcolm was calling for, the change we were calling for, has not yet happened. And therefore Malcolm's vision cannot be relegated to the past. His vision still helps us to imagine the future we want to see. Now, official United States narratives of past history always attempt to assimilate demands for radical transformation into a neat story of progress and triumph. The very fact that black freedom struggles came to be compressed and constricted by the rubric civil rights movement, and of course the civil rights movement was important, but that was not the entire story of the black freedom movement. And that in itself is indicative of this assimilationist uh, tendency. Uh, the fact that we ourselves often refer to the movement for black freedom as only a civil rights movement. During the 1960s, Malcolm emphasized the need to expand our vision. He told us that it was not only about civil rights, the rights that can be accorded to individuals by a single nation, state, and its government. Our vision needed to be broader. It had to move, Malcolm said, across the borders of nation states. It had to be transnational. It had to be international. The framework that Malcolm urged us to use was human rights. Now, Malcolm's trajectory and his insistence on radical frameworks has never been easily assimilable into a narrative of U.S. history as one in which increasing numbers of people get to participate in the circle of justice, equality, and freedom. Um, and I'm thinking about the way in which uh, uh, Dr. King's uh, uh, image has been entirely assimilated uh, into a capitalist narrative. Uh, um, which is not to say that Dr. King represented uh, those ideas, but this is the, the official narrative, the official representation. Now, Malcolm's vision from the very outset 
or at least from uh, the, the, the time he uh, uh, made the pilgrimage uh, to Mecca was, was an international vision, including not only people in the U.S. and not only black people, but people all over the world. And I tell you that I treasure the story that was told to me by Yuri Kochiyama about hosting a meeting in her Harlem apartment where Malcolm met with survivors of uh, the bombing, the, the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And there's also a photograph of Yuri leaning over Malcolm's body in this place shortly after he was assassinated. Uh, and I often wonder, why, why is it that that photograph is not circulated uh, more widely? You know, why didn't we see Yuri represented in Spike's film? time when we can reflect on uh, what, what we should call the long struggle for freedom. The long struggle for freedom conducted by and on behalf of black people in the Americas. The struggle against slavery, the struggle against segregation and secondhand uh, citizenship, and of course the struggle of Africans against the slave trade and colonialism and neo-colonialism. This is a time to reflect deeply on the long struggle for liberation that has already spanned multiple centuries. It is also a time to reflect on how we might accelerate that struggle in order to guarantee that those who have been denied entrance into the circle of freedom might not only be admitted, but by recognizing their struggles, their collective multi-generational vision, it might be possible to imagine future worlds. And Malcolm asked us to keep our eyes on the future. Future worlds, radical, democratic futures for all beings who inhabit this planet. And so, in, in the spirit of, of Malcolm's contributions, I want us to ponder a couple of questions. How has it actually been possible for black people and our allies, including in the first place indigenous people, how has it been possible to remain committed over so many centuries, over so many generations to this struggle for freedom? That is phenomenal. That each generation has passed on that impulse to fight for freedom to the next. And oftentimes, even when we thought the flames had been extinguished, um, we have um, a Black Lives Matter movement erupting. And, and so um, I think that, um, that we should um, 
acknowledge the uh, phenomenal uh, quality of black culture, uh, black political culture, uh, black music, uh, because where have we learned to cultivate that impulse for freedom? I mean, that is, that is the reason why we observe black history. You know, black history is not uh, just uh, because there are black people in you know, various parts of the world. It's about what black people have offered to people all over the world. And that is the desire, the cultivation of the desire to keep on struggling for freedom. It is in the art. It is the very heart of the music. And that is why black music is known by people all over this planet. Now, there's also the question, um, which we have to acknowledge. Why is it um, that uh, racism has persisted for so long? Um, and why has it become so naturalized that its proponents often believe that what we refer to as racism is the natural destiny of the world. Now, Malcolm understood the deeply ideological character of racism. And I use the term ideology to mean the way that we humans imagine ourselves in relation to the conditions of our existence. Malcolm understood that ideology even when you define it as the source of uh, illusory ideas about such, about such conditions, that ideology's role is precisely to make the conditions of our lives appear to be normal. And as a matter of fact, the more normal something appears to be, the more likely it is to be produced in and through ideology. This is the point that, that abolitionists make about the seeming permanence of jails and prisons, about uh, the permanence of police, about the so-called school resource offices, about the child protective, so-called child protective services uh, that um, um, Dorothy Roberts calls the family policing system. But thanks uh, to the way in which Malcolm taught us uh, to engage in the kind of radical reflection on that which is ideological, uh, we, we know that we can envision life beyond prisons and police. We can envision life beyond capitalism. Now, Malcolm used his remarkable oratory and his phenomenal sense of humor to trouble our sense of comfort in a world that was predicated, that is predicated, remains predicated on white superiority. Malcolm helped us to understand how we internalize 
those ideological assumptions and how their persistence depends on all of us doing the work of prisons, the work of the police, the work of capitalism, white supremacy. Uh, now, I had the opportunity to hear Malcolm in person. <laughs> and as, as a matter of fact, one of the, thing I'm, one of the things I'm most proud about uh, uh, connected to my time in college was the fact that Malcolm came in April of 1963 to speak at Brandeis University. And because there was only a handful of black students there, I got to meet him. <laughs> I was all of the black students got to meet him and to spend time with him. <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to, to point out that there are there are. Um, um, signs. There is evidence that we can challenge uh, that which is ideologically imposed. Uh, and, and, and I'm thinking about um, one area um, that we've seen a lot of change in over a relatively short period of time. And that is the demystification of the gender binary. Yes. I mean, who would have ever thought 20 years ago that we would be acknowledging again the ideological character of gender? Uh, uh, that, we, that we would be attentive to pronouns. Now, who would have ever imagined that? Uh, and I think it's important to recognize it, not only in terms of the advances that the trans movement um, has made, but also is evidence that we can dismantle other institutions whose seeming permanence uh, is also a product of ideology. As we develop the capacity to think about the damage wrought by racism, we often take shortcuts and we capitulate to heteropatriarchal assumptions that the targets of racism are primarily black men, or ethnocentric assumptions that racism affects exclusively black people. Ron DeSantis, uh, and Ben, thank you <laughs> for uh, asking us to uh, reflect on what is going on uh, uh, with that. Uh, don't let me characterize him. Go uh, on. But, but, but I just heard him. Uh, the, well, okay, I'll tell you that I just heard him, I think it was yesterday, uh, or maybe it was the day before, uh, uh, he, making fun of the fact that queer theory 
was included uh, under the rubric of the Black Studies Advanced Placement course that you were talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's pretty stupid. <laughs> you, know, you know, one of the things you learn, one of the things you learn when you really try to engage in a serious process of learning you learn that the more you learn, the less you know. <laughs> you know, you learn all, you learn that you, there's always so much more to learn. And, 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 and this um, governor, this, okay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, but but you know the, <laughs> and what has he said? I, I guess he he also they they also removed uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, so you're not allowed to talk about intersectionality. But I was just going to say that we have to think about the intersectionality of racism. You know, it's not just about identities. Uh, um, and because this is a historical moment when we are called upon to comprehend the structural, the systemic, the institutional character of racism, and then, okay, I'm just going to call them counter-revolutionaries, right? Uh, because it reminds me so much of, of, of the, the period of, of radical reconstruction and, and, and the responses to it. And following W.E.B. Du Bois, I'm just going to call them the counter-revolutionaries uh, uh, because they are trying to prevent... Uh, the progressive uh, developments uh, uh, from um, from transforming our lives, uh, and all he can think about is wokeness. He, I mean, he doesn't even know what wokeness means, uh, <laughs> but he 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 thinks that that uh, black studies will cause white children to feel bad about themselves. I think he must be talking about himself. Uh, uh. But in any event, the reason we are witnessing these uproars right now from DeSantis' strategies in Florida to the actions of the college board um, is that education is integrally related to social change. And this is something Malcolm taught us, uh, uh, both through his words and through his actions. Uh, you know, thanks to Malcolm's uh, decision to teach himself in prison, vast numbers of incarcerated people do the hard work of learning often learning how to read, as Malcolm did, but certainly learning um, how to use their intellects. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there's probably um, 
uh, more intellectual greatness behind bars now than in any other place. We're on the verge of substantial shifts in the way people think about race and racism. And those who want to prevent these shifts from happening are frantically trying to turn back the clock. At least 36 states have adopted or introduced laws that impede educational projects about race and racism. And here in New York, at the end of 2021, Republican lawmakers introduced bills that prevent public schools from providing instruction on structural racism. Even in the most progressive states, uh, and you know, I come from California, and most of the times I'm, I'm happy uh, to say that I come from you know, California um, uh, because, uh, uh, well, first of all, I live in Oakland. And you know, Oakland uh, celebrates May 19th, Oakland and Berkeley. Malcolm X's birthday is an official holiday in both of those cities. Uh, uh, but, um, but even in the most progressive states, uh, that we see efforts to restrict and confine um, instruction. California is also, I think, the only state with a statewide ethnic studies curriculum. Uh, but there have been major efforts, vociferous efforts, to prevent the inclusion of Palestine and Palestinians and Palestinian Americans in the curriculum. Amidst all of the pain and suffering produced by the COVID pandemic, and we're not that far removed from that era, this new collective awareness of the structural character of racism was generated. Not that it was a new way of thinking about racism. Scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois pointed this out scores of decades ago. Malcolm talked about institutional change, but The change, as many people have recognized uh, over the decades, is one that involves not so much a shift in subjective attitudes, although that's definitely welcome, um, but it's about structural transformation. It's not about white people not liking black people or indigenous people or, or Latinx people. Um, and that will change if there is structural change. But we can treat racism as a um, character defect or a character flaw and leave the entire systematic structure of racism intact. You know, they talk about racism without the racists. But in the, in, 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 in the spirit of all of the freedom movements that um, I tried to evoke at the beginning of my um, presentation, all of the free, freedom movements that have preceded us, um, let us vow never to forget the summer of 2020. It was only two and a half years ago. 
and we're already treating it like yeah like it's a, a like it's, it's a relic of history uh, um it was two and a half years ago when we were deep in the throes of the worst crisis most of us can remember and we collectively experienced the police uh, lynching the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the others uh, that have been referred to this occurred in the process of also recognizing that communities that were already subject to racism were the ones who were suffering most from the COVID pandemic a new awareness of the structural racism within the healthcare system, within the privatized healthcare system, within the capitalist healthcare system. Actually, not so much a new awareness, but a collective attentiveness to an idea that activists, scholar activists, have been insisting on since the era of radical reconstruction in the aftermath of slavery. And there have been those who have pointed out that racism is connected to capitalism, that capitalism is at its core racial capitalism. And not only here in the US. Capitalism was produced by colonialism and slavery. But finally it seemed, people seemed to get it. Racism does not emanate from the fact that white people don't like black people or indigenous or Latinx or Asian people. It is produced and reproduced structurally, systemically, institutionally. And this was a kind of collective aha moment. And we should never forget that. This is why more people poured out into the streets of this country than ever before in the history. This is why people join the uh, mobilizations. This is why more white people joined all of the, the, the mobilizations. Uh, and people were out in the streets even though we did not yet know then how COVID was transmitted. Millions of people poured out into the streets at the risk of their own lives. Demonstrating this new awareness became more important than the lives of individuals. The most remarkable moment in our recent history, maybe even in the history of this country, and this is why DeSantis and others are excising examination of this movement from the school curriculum. And so the stage was set for us to attempt to accomplish what should have been done in the 19th century, in the immediate aftermath of slavery. And it seemed that a good majority of people in this country, people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, seemed to realize this, to overlay the political context, all of this was happening during the presidency of the person whose name shall not be pronounced during our meeting this evening. Thus the counter-revolution, thus the attack against critical race theory 
which is a serious interdisciplinary field founded on the work of those who were attempting many years ago to understand the way structural racism expressed itself through the law. So those of you who are interested in history will be utterly struck by all of the parallels between the reaction to radical reconstruction, 1867 to 1877, and what we are currently witnessing. The police murder of Tyree Nichols in the very same city in which Dr. King was assassinated punctuates the message that racism is structural. Awareness of racism is not about making white children feel guilty. It is about recognizing the deep structures of racism in all of our institutions, regardless of who the individual perpetrators might be. It is a machine, it is a system, it is a culture that is produced and reproduced. And now, we know better how to initiate the process of ridding our worlds of racism. We know better than ever before. And I just have a few more words. Um, I just I want to say it involves standing up against heteropatriarchy. Yeah. We know that it involves saying no to economic exploitation. We know we cannot exclude any community that suffers from the effects of racism. And this includes Asian Americans, and this includes Arab Americans, this includes Palestinians. We know, we know finally that we cannot struggle for human freedom without recognizing that we are all animals. And that we must stand in support of our non-human co-inhabitants of this planet. And thank you so much uh, for the, the beautiful um, metaphor of the rabbit, um, the pattern of the rabbit escaping. But I think that uh, we look at, we look at um, simple creatures like ants that are able to entirely transform um, a place and build these edifices, these architectural edifices without at all harming the environment. I think we have much to learn from them. That it is possible to benefit from this earth, even to transform it without annihilating the very conditions of future life on this planet. Thank you very much. Professor Angela Davis, speaking at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, the site of the Audubon Ballroom in New York City, where Malcolm X was assassinated February 21st, 1965. Angela Davis was speaking on the 58th anniversary of his death this year. Malcolm was born 98 years ago today, May 19th, 1925. When we come back, we hear civil rights attorney Ben Crump and then Malcolm X in his own words. Stay with us.
John Coltrane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue to look at the life and legacy of Malcolm X, born 98 years ago today, as we turn to civil rights attorney Ben Crump, representing Malcolm's family in a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the FBI, the CIA, New York City and state, and the New York police, as well as the district attorney's office for concealing evidence of their involvement in Malcolm X's 1965 assassination. Three men were convicted of his murder, two of them fully exonerated in 2021. Ben Crump spoke on February 21st at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, housed in the former Audubon Ballroom, where Malcolm was shot dead on that day in 1965. I think what would have come of Malcolm had they not 58 years ago on this day assassinated one of the greatest thought leaders that was ever produced in the 21st century. How much more Malcolm had to give the world? And I often think about that, Dr. Davis, when I think about Trayvon. What would have come of 17-year-old Trayvon had he not been shot in the heart by some wannabe cop? What would have become Mark uh, Breonna Taylor? This queen who was just two semesters from getting her college degree, being a nurse, but she was executed with nine bullets in her home while she was practically naked. What would have become of Botham Jean, young black man who was in his own apartment, minding his own business, when this white policewoman came and shot him while he was eating ice cream and watching TV, and then she had the audacity to say, Gina, self-defense. It was self-defense. But Tamara, it wasn't her house. It was Botham's house. And so we have to continue to stand up, speak up, and fight for our children and our loved ones. Because if we don't fight for our children and our loved ones, we can't expect nobody else to fight for our children and loved ones. And finally, finally, I think about the Shabazz Center and the objectives of trying to make sure we educate the future generations with the history that has been contributed, Rob, by our ancestors. And I am ever reminded, ever reminded, that we have to fight racism and discrimination, Dominique, wherever it rears its ugly head. And so, in light of all of those high-profile police cases we fight, there are other battles that are just as important, whether it's medical racism with Henrietta Lacks, whether it's the $100 million lawsuit filed on behalf 
of Malcolm X's daughters because we can never let them think that we will forget about Malcolm X. We will continue to fight every day. And we have to fight those who would try to rob our children and all children of learning about black history like our governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is trying to prohibit the teaching of advanced placement African-American studies. And so I am on record, Attorney O'Neill, if he does not capitulate and allow the teaching of black history, we're going to sue him. We're going to sue him because, as Dr. Carter G. Woodson said, also known as the father of black history, if a race does not have a history, if it has no traditions that are respected and taught to the young people, then it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and become in danger of being exterminated. And we refuse to let Governor DeSantis exterminate black history in Florida. We refuse to let anybody exterminate black history in any state in the United States of America. Because black history is American history. And not only do black children need to know about black history, but white children especially need to know about black history. And so we will fight because our children need to know that our history made this country what it is today. That was civil rights attorney Ben Crump speaking on February 21st on the 58th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X at the Audubon Ballroom, now the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center. We end today's show with Malcolm X in his own words, speaking in 1964. One of the first things that the independent African nations did was to form an organization called the Organization of African Unity. The purpose of our organization of Afro-American Unity which has the same aim and objective, to fight whoever gets in our way. <laughs> to bring about the complete independence of people of African descent here in the Western Hemisphere and first here in the United States and bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. That's our motto. The purpose of our organization is to start right here in Harlem, which has the largest concentration of people of African descent that exists anywhere on this earth. There are more Africans here in Harlem than exist in any city on the African continent. Because that's what you and I are, Africans. The Charter of the United Nations 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights are the principles in which we believe, and that these documents, if put into practice, represent the essence of mankind's hopes and, uh, and good intentions, desirous that all Afro-American people and organizations should henceforth unite so that the welfare and well-being of our people will be assured we are resolved to reinforce the common bond of purpose between our people by submerging all of our differences and establishing non-sectarian constructive programs for human rights. We hereby present this charter, number one, the establishment. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom in the Irish neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood, we need to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get there, It's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf right into the arms of the fox looking for some kind of help. That's a drag. <laughs> Number two, self-defense. Malcolm X, speaking in 1964. He was born 98 years ago today, on May 19, 1925. Go to democracynow.org to see the full event with Dr. Angela Davis, Ben Crump, Malcolm X's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, and many others at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, the site of the Audubon Ballroom in New York City where Malcolm X was gunned down February 21st, 1965. And that does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Samin Farkande, Eli Putnam, and Tamari Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.